Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in this space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of CRE Exchange. I'm Cole Perry, your host and senior market analyst at Altus Group, a leading provider of asset and fund level intelligence. I'm joined by Omar Elterai, our U.S. Director of Research, and together we'll share the latest news and trends in the U.S. commercial real estate market. Omar, it's great to be with you. Glad to be here. So tell me what uh, caught your attention last week. In the U.S., the Fed's FOMC held the target Fed funds rate at the range of 5.25 to 5.5%, uh, while noting a reduced chance of a recession. And while the pause was anticipated by markets and expectations for a soft landing was welcome, the Fed did signal that they expect rates to remain higher for longer, with the 12 FOMC members lowering their expectations for rate cuts over the next year and pushing out the date to which they expect to see inflation hit the target 2% level. They're now expecting to hit the target 2% level of inflation in 2026. Overall, the markets interpreted this as hawkish and notably so, and reacted quite negatively to this. Despite the soft landing narrative, the higher for longer flavor to this soft landing is something that is really viewed by the markets as quite painful, given the hope for seeing rate cuts rather than just pause going forward. And as of recording, which is we're recording on Monday, the 25th, the futures markets are showing that there's an 18.4% chance of a rate hike at the next FOMC meeting, which is in November. Also last week, there were a number of other central banks reporting and announcing rate decisions. The Bank of England broke their 14 consecutive rate hike streak when they paused for their policy rate. And this was a pretty close call as four of the nine members on the Monetary Policy Committee voted to raise, but they were only beat out by the five who voted to pause. And ultimately, the decision to pause was largely attributed to a surprise downward inflation print. Also in central bank land, the Swiss National Bank and Bank of Japan announced policy rate decisions and also kept their policy rates unchanged. Cole, I know you were looking at housing data. What were you seeing there? Yeah, we got a lot of housing data last week. And so we had data on permits, starts, existing home sales in the U.S. and housing starts in Canada. Some surprising news in here. Housing permits were up 6.9% in August, but you dig in and you realize that there was a 14.8% jump in multifamily. A lot of that jump overall driven by the multifamily sector. But the more interesting piece here was actually that housing starts were down. Of course, housing doesn't necessarily start even if it is permitted. Looking at both of these gives you an idea of the true kind of nature of the housing pipeline. So the seasonally adjusted annual rate of housing starts 
was down 11.3% from August 22 to August 23. Now, this was notable because there's a huge decrease in the number of housing starts for multifamilies. These were down 26.3%. These two typically don't move in the opposite direction. And when they do, they lag a little bit. But The multifamily development pipeline is notoriously volatile, so I think we'll have to take a look next month to see if this is the beginning of a trend in multifamily housing starts or if these will pick back up, notably because there's been some indication that there's still rent growth in that sector, so a lot of new developers might want to hop in on that. So existing home sales, more of the same from last month or rather from July. So they declined slightly. I think they were expected largely to remain flat. But this was a slight decline, 0.7% month over month, 15.3% year on year. Median housing prices, though, are effectively up to their highest level. So we're only a couple hundred, if not a couple thousand dollars off of the highest median sale price ever recorded. And so we're sitting at 407,000. So pretty big news. Just noting this constrained supply for single family homes. And then in Canada, interestingly, we had a housing start data from two weeks ago, but I feel like it's worth mentioning here as well to get a full picture of the North American housing market. And so starts were down 1% month over month in August. And so they came in at 252,000 compared with seasonally adjusted rate of 255,000 in July. So more of the same here. What we've been seeing really is that between super high mortgage interest rates and sort of an interesting large development pipeline for multifamily, we expected that to slow down a little bit, but things are a little bit volatile here. I'll be interested to see what's going on next month to see if those starts and permits keep tracking with one another or what the story is there. I know you were looking at some home data too. There was a big earnings call. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I tuned in for KB Homes third quarter earnings, and this is a Los Angeles-based home builder which serves primarily the first time and first move up home buyers. They reported their third quarter earnings on Wednesday, the 20th. Overall, it was a beat. They reported a dollar and 80 cents earnings per share. And their model is really built to order. And a number of the things that they noted on the call is that there is increased demand for smaller sized homes. They noted that this was one of the ways in which home buyers are not necessarily sacrificing value, but coming to a price that is more suitable to what they can afford, right? Given the dynamics that you've noted at the macro level of a shrinking pipeline, high interest rates, so high cost of borrowing, but limited supply, which is keeping prices up. This is something that they noted as being a reality as an operator in this space. But on the smaller home size, this is one area where they're seeing, especially first-time home buyers, willing to sacrifice some square footage to ultimately get the home that they want for a price that they can afford. They did note that they granted some mortgage concessions. That's something that we've been tracking in many of the home builders' earnings reports as they try to support home buyers and support the demand. But KB really noted that they were mostly offering these for buyers who were having a tough time qualifying otherwise for the mortgage. Another thing they noted that I think is definitely a positive is that they're seeing delivery speeds recover 
they've been recovering for the last couple of quarters and are currently around six months. So it takes KB Home around six months to build a home. And this is silver lining. This is trending in the right direction, but it is still off of their four to five month long-term average. Another thing that they noted is that the supply chain has been improving and that the labor shortage has also improved with the exception of land development. And the management team noted that the land development labor supply is running a bit tight and they attributed that predominantly to increased federal spending on infrastructure projects. And then finally, one thing that stuck out was that the team spoke quite positively around the supply and demand dynamics that are playing out. They noted that the large demographic cohort of first-time home buyers, really the millennials and Gen Z, are providing sufficient demand and the tight housing supply is really helping keep home prices up. Now, again, now we're speaking two sides, right, of a coin. When we're talking about home buyers, they probably want to see some, you know, softening in prices and increased availability of credit so that they can get into their homes. But at the same time, nobody wants to see home prices collapse because that would be catastrophic to the home builders, but also would be quite painful on the American consumer as a whole, given that homes are really, right. yeah, a huge part of their I net worth. I think there's some expectation, too, that they think mortgage rates can't go up from where they are. So maybe perhaps a few years from now, they could refinance at a much lower rate. If you can get in now, perhaps pay the incremental mortgage insurance, maybe a few years from now, you'll be in a better place, even if you're stretched really tight now. Absolutely. And that's and that actually the mortgage volatility or the momentum at which mortgages have moved over the last 18 months has been something that everybody has touched on, we've touched on. And it's something that came up on the call where they noted that if you look over the 18 months or 12 months, it's pretty significant and shocking how fast mortgage rates have moved. However, if you look at quarter over quarter, the mortgage rate has largely stayed within a range that I think the overall home buyer population is adjusting to. I think that is a silver lining if one needed to draw a silver lining here. But I know that you were also tuned in to a number of earnings. What caught your attention? Yeah, I was paying attention to three this week. And the first was on the 19th. That was AutoZone. So overall, this was a beat. They beat on earnings and sales expectations. So they had sales growth of 6.4% year on year. Oddly, though, stock fell at the news of the company's domestic commercial division coming up short. So we mentioned last week that AutoZone's typically looked at if we're thinking about a recession because demand for automobiles will get channeled into sort of fixing up your existing automobile instead of purchasing a new one. Now we're seeing really that their retail division is largely doing well, but their commercial division, so selling directly to dealerships who perform services on top of selling new cars, they are struggling. So that division really dominated the news for them. Their stock fell a, a few percentage points on that news. One thing that their management noted is that they could potentially benefit from 
a more widespread UAW strike, something we haven't mentioned too much on the podcast so far. But if the United Auto Workers strike spreads to more plants, the pipeline for new vehicles begins to dry up, or if the prices for new vehicles really skyrockets, then AutoZone, I think, expects to collect some of the downstream effects from that. So they had a decent quarter, but the news of their commercial division, which they've really invested a lot in over the last couple of years, came up a little bit short. I think I'll keep paying attention. They have a number of major competitors that I'll be looking out for as well. Napa, O'Reilly, other auto parts dealers. Should be interesting to see what comes up in their earnings calls. Next was FedEx. Again, another Memphis company announced the, the day after. So they really benefited this last quarter from gaining some customers in their freight division from competitor Yellow, which collapsed earlier this year. And they gained customers amidst some tense negotiations between UPS and the Teamsters. Mind you, they did reach an agreement, but FedEx actually retained a lot of the customers that they gained from both of these. So customers that were really looking for a freight provider, they have stuck with FedEx after the collapse of yellow. And a lot of the customers that in anticipation of a more drawn out version of some negotiations between the UPS and the Teamsters, they stuck with FedEx as well. But overall, they've seen a slowdown in demand, but this has really been overshadowed by their cost-cutting spree. They have promised to cut about $4 billion in expenditures over the next couple of years. So even as revenues were down 9% year-on-year, which was expected, their operating income was up 18%, largely because they cut costs. So their stock surged on this news 5.5% on the day. What will be interesting here is there will be among the first to see some of the slowdowns in the economy when that does really happen, when consumer spending comes down or if consumer spending comes down. But they are looking for room for growth because there's only so much cost cutting you can do. So I'll be interested to see what the next couple of quarters look like for FedEx, but really an indicator of a lot of different commercial real estate sectors. I think there'll be a sort of a leading indicator of what we might be seeing with retail and with industrial. They have a huge industrial footprint that I'd like to keep an eye out on. And lastly, I mentioned this last week, but Darden Restaurants was an earnings call from last week that I paid attention to pretty closely. So they reported very strong earnings, beating expectations. Sales were up 11.6% year on year and same store sales were up 5%, outpacing their competitors by a lot. I paid attention to this one mostly for some of the commentary surrounding them, not for their numbers specifically. Their executives commented on some signs of weakness and that some customers at their fine dining chains in their portfolio are cutting out alcohol expenditures, which has been a signal of the interesting underlying demand for some of these restaurants. And then they've seen customers cashing in coupons more frequently at their affordable chains. And they have some extreme uncertainty surrounding beef prices. So they have a lot of steakhouses and other chains that are huge consumers of beef. And so nearly a fourth of all their commodity costs are in that one sector. And so there's some major uncertainty about input costs. Lastly, there was an article from Placer AI who I believe provides some analytics for Darden's chains. And they wrote an article talking about visits. So foot traffic, they're a foot traffic data provider. And they have said that the mid-scale chains have seen more visitors during the week because people are coming back to work. 
And so they're seeing after work visits at bars or at sit down meals. So I think there's a lot here. Darden has a huge widespread range of restaurants that I think can help pinpoint different sectors to the economy. And they've really been performing strong as a signal that the consumer remains resilient and sort of hungry, literally and figuratively, for affordable, luxurious food. I'm assuming you're talking about Olive Garden. It's all right. But in other news that caught my attention last week was WP Carey's announcement of their strategic plan to really divest from office and focus their investment portfolio on industrial, warehouse, essential retail, and self-storage assets. So this is a 50-year-old net lease REIT. And as of June earlier this year, their portfolio was comprised of partial or full ownership interests in over 1,400 properties across the U.S. and Europe. The portfolio was approximately 180 million square feet, substantially leased to 398 tenants. It was a rather healthy portfolio, still is rather healthy portfolio. And when they announced this, I think it was, it was a little bit of a surprise. And what they announced that they're doing is divest from office, which their office exposure is roughly 16% of their annualized base rent or 16 million square feet. Or if you're looking at it in terms of percentage of their total portfolio, it's about 9% of their total square footage. The strategic plan was detailed on a special investor call on the 21st, and they explained how it really has two prongs. The first is that they're launching an office sale program where they're going to be offloading around 87 properties that they will be retaining on their balance sheet. And these are mostly in Europe. But then the biggest piece is that they will be doing a spinoff of the majority of their office portfolio into a newly formed REIT. This REIT will be named Net Lease Office Properties. It'll trade on New York Stock Exchange under the ticker of NLOP, and it contains 59 properties that are mostly in the U.S. Now, WP Carey will be netting approximately $350 million from the spinoff, and the transaction is expected to close around the 1st of November. Now, what I'm excited for is I think that these are high quality assets, triple net leased. It's one of the purest kind of like office plays. The fact that it's triple net leased, mostly credit tenants, and will be going to market in the coming weeks means that it'll be a really good comp for what the market views as the value or how they perceive office as a whole. So I'll be watching that and following any additional updates from WP Carey. So I uh, was taking a look. There was some additional news that came out about Local Law 18 here in New York City, which is more or less a de facto ban on short-term rentals. And so the New York Post reported that Airbnb listings have plunged 77% after the crackdown. Even before this registration portal has really taken hold for short-term rentals, you've already seen a bunch of listings drop off. There were a couple other related articles too. Uh, so Hotel Dive reported that there were some other cities who are 
considering similar legislation, probably not as extreme or as multifaceted as the New York law. And so those are Dallas, Memphis, Quebec, and then in San Francisco. And this is an indicator that some others might try something similar, but probably for other reasons, nuisance related, probably less trying to open some of this supply back to long-term runners like New York was attempting to do. Wall Street Journal did a really nice piece about hospitality and saying that they're expecting a resurgence or there is a likely resurgence in the hospitality market here in Manhattan. Well, simply, there haven't been any new hotels built since 2021. There was some permitting reform done here in New York that essentially equated to a ban on new hotel rooms being built here on the island. And so fit all these pieces together. You had about 50,000 new hotel rooms built between 2000 and 2013 here in Manhattan. And now you've taken a bunch of supply offline for short-term rentals. You look at this as an existing hotel, and this is great news, an opportunity to really capture some RevPAR. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how that plays out because we discussed it last week, but I'm curious to see how effective they're able to enforce. But those are pretty big numbers from when it was announced. If the law functions as a scare tactic, it seems to have done that, at least in the short term. But if they can't really ramp up enforcement, perhaps we'll see some of those come back in the next couple of months. But something we'll keep an eye out for hospitality, particularly in New York, is is a really interesting sector. So I know we'll both be looking at the data there. So what are you looking at this coming week? Yep. We're headed to Crefsey this week on Thursday. So when this podcast goes live, and hopefully if any of the listeners are also attending, hopefully you'll say hi to either Cole or myself. But then in terms of economic data, we have PC coming out on the 28th and then Core PC coming out on the 29th and GDP also coming out this week. Is there anything else that you're Looking forward to this week? Yeah, there was one uh, kind of big thing here, and Congress has a week to avoid government shutdown and barring any political discussion. What this means for us in the short term is that there won't be any economic indicators for a while if the government does shut down. They'll come to a halt and we'll potentially not get consumer price index, something that the Fed looks at. I know you consider this somewhat of a black swan event. I'll be interested to see if we avert government shutdown and can keep the pace of economic indicators that a lot of regulators look for. So Absolutely. It's something that we seem to go to the brink multiple times and history suggests that we should get out of this all right, but I really have a tough time seeing how this is not a bigger concern right? This is something that would have a massive impact. And especially now when the economy is quite fragile, or at least in terms of sentiment, and I think there's enough fear in the market to have one more challenge could really tip the scales, but I hope that we can avoid the worst. So I hope so too. But in the meantime, we have some indicators this week. And so we've got a couple on housing, which we'll talk about next time we record. And so that's the FHFA home price index. We've got Case Schiller as well on the 26th. So by the time we record, that'll be out. We've also got new home sales and pending home sales. And then on the 27th, we have durable goods orders. And on the 29th, we have personal spending, wholesale inventories, and the University of Michigan 
consumer sentiment index. So very big week for those of us who are deep in the numbers. But lastly, we've got a few earnings calls that I'll pay attention to. And so on the 26th, we have Costco. On the 28th, we have CarMax, which I'm looking at for the same reasons I was paying attention to AutoZone. And then uh, a really interesting one on the 29th, we have Carnival Cruise Lines. And so that will be an interesting indicator of, again, what the consumer is up to. Or I'm really looking forward to the commentary on their sort of forward-looking projections for travel and spending demand. So that's what I'm looking out for. And I know, again, I hope to see some of our listeners at Crefsi this week. So come say hello. But that's all the time we've got. And we'll be back next week with some more updates on another episode of CRE Exchange. Thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.